Hello and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. Today I'm talking to Kara Zibin, a psychiatry professor at the University of Michigan and researcher at the Veterans Affairs Ann Arbor Healthcare System in Mathematica. Zibin's research focuses on mental health services and policy, including mental health research on women in the perinatal period but she also comes to this topic with striking personal experience. 10 years ago, she experienced acute depression, anxiety, and insomnia during her own pregnancy that nearly ended her life. Perinatal mental health issues, including perinatal depression and other mood disorders, affect many individuals in the U.S. and globally and can lead to harm to birthing people and children. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Zivin writes about her recovery from perinatal depression and how that drives her research to facilitate practice and policy change to improve outcomes for pregnant individuals. And just a note, the October issue of Health Affairs features several papers on the important topic of perinatal mental health, so I'd encourage listeners to check out the other pieces in the issue. Kara, I'm currently pregnant myself, and I was so moved by your piece, which is so honest and powerful. I imagine it's not easy to talk about such a difficult period in your life. So why is it so important to you to share this personal story about what it's like to experience severe depression during pregnancy beyond doing important research on the data behind these issues? Thank you for the question, Jessica, and I'm glad to speak with you. I think that I really wanted to be able to help other people feel less alone, less afraid, less guilty about their experiences if they had a pregnancy where They did not spend the entire time feeling happy and glowing, but rather struggled often in silence. And I felt that I had enormous opportunities and privileges to get help, and yet I still struggled. So I imagined that other people might have had even greater challenges. And so I've tried to do what I can to increase awareness and support other people. And several articles in this special issue discuss what policy solutions are needed to improve perinatal mental health in this country. I mean, recognizing that there's so much that needs to be done, if policymakers could seriously advance just one or two things in the current administration, what would you like to see move forward? So there are many different policy options, as you've mentioned. I think two that come uh, quickly to mind is expanding Medicaid postpartum for a full year. I think that's really essential because many issues after pregnancy, whether mental health or physical health conditions, may occur beyond the 60 days after delivery. And if people don't have insurance coverage during that later period, they could really struggle and their health and the health of their children could be at risk. The other issue that I want to raise, which I think is important and exciting in terms of our briefing that we will be having for this special issue, is the work that Representative Underwood and others have done trying to advance a broad base of legislation around maternal health and specifically focused on Black women, uh, Black mothers' mental health. And so I think if we could move forward on those two areas, that would both represent significant contributions in this area. Great. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. And now here's Kara Zivin reading her essay, Perinatal Mental Illness Nearly Ended My Life. One winter evening after picking at lifeless broccoli 
and pushing unidentifiable meat around a cafeteria tray, I plopped down on the floor amid a sea of books in the psychiatric ward. I am at home among books, but this was not that kind of library. Although I felt out of place among the other inmates, I could not be sure where exactly I belonged. Trapped inside the locked doors, suspended between past and future, I disappeared into illness and captivity, blizzard and heartbreak, the nearness of knowing how close I had come to killing myself and by extension my unborn son. The pregnancy was over, lost in a blanket of snow, and the path to my hospital discharge unveiled itself only a minute at a time. Hiding in bed too much would mean that I would lose my opportunity for the faceless wardens to observe that I deserved liberation and would risk remaining trapped alone in this whitewashed cage. My body throbbed, red blood leaking into my pad-protected underwear. Four days earlier, I had given birth. My bottom landed with a thud as I attempted to sit cross-legged on the threadbare carpet, suspended in an eternal present in the ward library, where moments before I had forgotten to use my pseudonym, Ellen Elkins, when introducing myself. I had not wanted the inpatient psychiatry team, members of my own university academic department, to recognize me on the other side of the looking glass. I hung on to a false hope of anonymity as I slunk down corridors, hanging my head in shame. As the other patients and I mumbled our names, we stared at the board game spread between us. From nowhere, I announced I had just given birth. No one asked why I was here on this ward, away from my son, and no one wondered aloud whether I belonged elsewhere. But with the monitors lurking, I knew I needed to prove my competence, to express coherent thoughts, to figure out how to play apples to apples, a game of crazy comparisons, because somehow playing would both set me free and make me sorry for swallowing handfuls of pills, sorry for putting my son's life at risk. Did my performance satisfy them? That was a hard question to answer. I could not yet know that in two days, a nurse would announce that I was being released. I would grab the green duffel bag off the shelf across from the foot of my twin-sized bed and throw my clothes and toiletries into it, the quickest I had moved in weeks, shuddering in terror that if I did not spring forth now, my parole would get revoked. Once free, I would inhale air beneath an overcast sky outdoors for the first time in 10 days, emerging into the remnants of the avalanche of snow that had descended onto my hometown the night of my overdose. I would walk coatless through my snow-filled neighborhood, my breath hovering in a mist, smiling because around me the cold snap of life flashed across my cheeks. I would sense something close to relief, if only for that evening, and know that I was taking the first step on this new path called motherhood, shivering and wobbling. Peering from the driveway into my living room window, I would watch my husband cradling our infant son in the black leather recliner, and I would be sure that our suburban tract home had never looked so bright and cozy, with the fuchsia dusk hanging overhead. I would feel as though I were witnessing a family in a dollhouse. I would try to escape the reminders of how my illness-driven behaviors led me to the hospital and my son's premature birth and our brushes with death. But I was not yet there, standing on the ice-coated sidewalk amidst the flurries. 
I remained sitting on the library floor in a psychiatric ward, playing a board game about crazy comparisons. Almost exactly nine years after my delivery and hospitalization, I sat in a chair on the side of a stage in February 2020, mere weeks before a global pandemic brought travel and public gatherings to a standstill. From my vantage point, I could see the audience nodding in agreement with the prior speaker as awareness, acknowledgement, and solidarity flashed across their faces. After the audience applause, a conference organizer stood and recited my name, affiliations, titles, and degrees. I stepped up to the stage, approached the podium, adjusted my glasses, and inhaled. During the past two decades in my academic career, I had taught myself how to speak in public. Yet my plans for this presentation made my nerves quiver. At first, I showed charts and graphs of a forthcoming article on a study my collaborators and I had led, highlighting the costs of untreated perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. $14 billion lost per year in the U.S. I let the numbers sink in with the audience. 30 slides into my talk, data presented, context and summary outlined, I paused. I drew in a deep breath as I saw the faces in the audience peering at me. I stared at survivors, advocates, family members, and pain and thought, me too. I could see my own image in the data I presented. A sea of faces of all ages and races trained their eyes on me. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see a mother bouncing a baby on her lap. Across the room, I spied a husband whose wife I knew had died by suicide soon after giving birth. I drew energy from their gazes and attention. Despite my fierce internal battle about whether, when, and how to reveal myself, I pushed forward. Professional is personal, my next slide read, with three photos underneath the pronouncement. The first photo displayed my six-month-old son sitting in my lap, both of us wearing bright green shirts with me wearing jeans and him in denim overalls. I beamed behind his baby-faced grin. In the next photo, he stood beside me, elbow draped across my back as I sat on a picnic bench in our backyard during his first grade year. In the final photo, he stood alone, flashing braces on his teeth, standing tall in a clip-on necktie and long-sleeved button-down collared shirt for picture day in second grade. That day, his classmates teased him that he looked like he planned to run for president. When preparing my presentation, I could not help but think. It could have turned out so differently. The depression, anxiety, and insomnia could have extinguished both of us. The handfuls of pills and the unrelenting illness that had tried to pull me away could have prevented me from crossing over the threshold to where I became a mom. What if I did not have health insurance, access to care, a supportive family, or the ability to take time away from work without losing my job? What if Child Protective Services deemed me a threat to my child? To this day, the what-ifs remain just a thought away, ready to steal my breath when I lie in bed with my son, holding him tight or reading a bedtime story. Standing at the podium, I told the audience that the following week my son would have his ninth birthday, meaning three days before could have been both of our death days. I could feel the silence in the room. People put down their phones and stopped taking notes. One of my colleagues would later tell me that the audience realized then that I was one of them. 
Her words reminded me that I was not alone, the way I had felt all those years ago. I had spent decades becoming a scientist, an authority on data and methods, long before my mental health crisis nearly claimed my life. I had known despair, but in the past, even when it felt unmanageable, I could find my way through darker days and hopeless nights with a low dose of an antidepressant and psychotherapy. Then the storm of my pregnancy collided with life circumstances, hormones, and abandoning treatment in the hopes of a medication-free pregnancy. Treatments that had previously worked for me failed, and my illness ended up nearly destroying me. What finally worked to stem the tide of depression included nine rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, which uses brief electrical currents applied to the brain. I began treatment six weeks postpartum, and within a few short days, my depression began to lift. Although ECT remains controversial, it also represents one of the most effective treatments for treatment-resistant depression. I experienced short-term memory loss in the weeks surrounding treatment, a well-documented adverse effect of ECT. I tried to convince myself that I made a worthwhile trade, lost memories of my son's first few months of life in exchange for my relatively rapid return to functioning and my ability to become his mother. I spent the first five years of my son's life cowering in shame, trying to run away from the hazy memories of my illness, but I could not bury my perinatal experiences in the recesses of my mind. So like many other challenges I have faced, I ran toward it rather than away. As a tenured professor of psychiatry, how could I not serve as an example of recovery and fighting stigma? I trained for triathlons and road races until I did not make it across the finish line during my only attempt at a marathon the result of an injury I incurred three weeks before the race. That defeat threatened to break me again. I had to find another way to take care of myself. I could not outrun my moods. Hobbling forward on sore feet, I pivoted back to my research and the data, trying to understand an illness that knows no bounds by race, age, socioeconomic status, or educational attainment. Shortly thereafter, I began to take classes in creative writing, and later decided to try to meld my research and my personal experiences. Within a few years, I found myself as an invited speaker at this conference on perinatal mental illness, closing my presentation by saying, we should care about this illness and do right by mothers and families because it is the right thing to do, not just because it is so very costly to do nothing. I wrapped up my remarks and watched the tide swell. At first slowly and then quickly, the audience members rose to their feet. I inhaled the moment, determined to commit it to memory. I cannot recall ever before experiencing a standing ovation. The applause buoyed me as if I could float away from my past and into the warm embrace of a knowing, welcoming community. My son and I had pulled through my illness so that I could stand before a sympathetic audience to convey a message of hope while using data to give it voice and agency. After my presentation, a woman I did not know approached me and announced herself as a fangirl. She hugged me tight. Others handed me business cards and later emailed me to ask for more information about my data. Could I help them create statistics for their state? Could I present at an upcoming conference? 
I began to receive invitations to speak nationally and internationally to share both my story and my data. We need both if we want to get meaningful results. In a policy overview piece, policy opportunities to improve prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of perinatal mental health conditions in this special section of health affairs focused on perinatal mental health, my colleagues and I recommend six systemic changes to health and social services to address perinatal mental health. In short, we recommend extending Medicaid through 12 months postpartum, redesigning care and reimbursement through co-location of services, establishing coverage for home visiting and peer support programs, extending telehealth policies that support access and coverage post-pandemic, enhancing data research and accountability, and enacting social and economic policies that support families, such as job-protected paid parental leave. Here I offer four complementary suggestions from my dual perspective as a survivor and a health services and policy researcher. I recommend that the United States expand the creation and use of perinatal psychiatry mother and baby units. Conduct systematic tracking of mental health contributors to maternal morbidity and mortality. Educate the public on the range, breadth, and depth of perinatal mental illnesses, not just postpartum depression. And make it safe for childbearing people to get help with mental health conditions during pregnancy and postpartum. Psychiatric mother and baby units. The website of Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Women's Mental Health features an article titled, If We Are So Concerned About Maternal Mental Health, Why Don't We Have More Mother and Baby Mental Health Programs? As of 2020, only two inpatient perinatal programs existed in the U.S., one in North Carolina and the other in New York. 22 intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization programs operate across 13 U.S. states. The Perinatal Psychiatry Inpatient Unit at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the first such unit in the U.S., opened in 2011, six months after I gave birth. In contrast, the first admissions to similar facilities began in the United Kingdom in 1948, France in 1979, Australia in 1983, Belgium in 1990, and India in 2009. These units improve outcomes for both birthing people and babies. In the U.S., we must make these programs more available and accessible for those who could benefit from them. Tracking mental health contributors to maternal morbidity and mortality. The World Health Organization defines maternal deaths as female deaths from any cause related to or aggravated by pregnancy or its management, excluding accidental or incidental causes during pregnancy and childbirth or within 42 days of termination of pregnancy, irrespective of the duration and site of the pregnancy. This definition underestimates the true societal burden of maternal mortality, as it excludes suicide, overdose, homicide, and accidental deaths. It also excludes deaths beyond 42 days postpartum and deaths during pregnancy and postpartum that doctors or medical examiners may overlook because of inconsistent and unstandardized reporting. 
Data from 14 states show that mental health conditions are the leading cause of pregnancy-related death for non-Hispanic white women. In California, maternal drug-related death and suicide represent leading causes of postpartum death. In Illinois, one-fifth of all deaths of pregnant women and new mothers in 2014 to 2016 involve suicides and overdoses, according to the 2018 Illinois Department of Public Health Maternal Morbidity and Mortality Report. In Louisiana, homicide was the leading cause of death during pregnancy and the postpartum period in 2016, as reported in a study published in 2020 in JAMA Pediatrics by Maeve Wallace and colleagues. The Louisiana study noted, relative to the attention paid to obstetric causes of death, rigorous examination of mortality from non-obstetric causes during pregnancy and the postpartum period is rare. Evidence-based policy approaches that can be implemented today could curb preventable deaths associated with mental health and substance use causes and overall maternal mortality. A first step includes capturing a current and accurate assessment of the burden of perinatal mental health conditions. Educating the public. Multiple barriers may prevent childbearing people from seeking or receiving treatment during pregnancy and postpartum, including lack of awareness. Although many people may have heard of postpartum depression, public recognition of other perinatal mental illnesses, such as anxiety or bipolar disorder during pregnancy and after delivery remains low. People may also carry the misconception that pregnancy protects a mother from mental illness and might not have awareness of antenatal illness. The public also might not realize how long postpartum illness can last after delivery. Perinatal mental health literacy represents an important determinant of screening and treatment acceptability and preference. Efforts to enhance the public's perinatal mental health literacy as part of a multifaceted perinatal mental health strategy could help optimize pregnant and postpartum mental health. Make it safe to disclose. Disclosing perinatal mental health conditions, although it has clear benefits in terms of receiving appropriate treatment, may come with risks as well. Affected people may feel concerned about providers perceiving them as a bad parent and stigma about mental illness may limit their willingness to disclose symptoms or other concerns. They may have concerns about what will happen to them and their infant should they disclose symptoms or feelings, particularly regarding suicidal ideation or potential self-harm which providers and policymakers must allay to ensure that people will be willing to seek out and receive support and treatment as appropriate. All risks of disclosure might not be equal across birthing people. Non-white or poor pregnant or birthing people are much more likely to face legal consequences regarding these disclosures. Loss of parental rights, or in the case of attempted suicide, potentially being charged for a crime based on fetal endangerment laws in some states could occur. Thus, fears remain rooted in the reality of what goes on in medical settings and the application of law. Making it safe for pregnant and birthing people to disclose mental health and substance use disorders means addressing the racism and classism within the U.S. medical and legal systems. Future Directions Perinatal mood and anxiety disorders can have costly multi-generational consequences. 
Prevention, early intervention, and appropriate follow-up can mitigate some of the most pernicious effects of these common yet often hidden and stigmatized disorders. I recognize my good fortune in having access to health insurance coverage, providers, and family and social support, as well as the ability to take sick leave to cover my absences at work during my treatment. Many other people, such as transgender and non-binary pregnant and birthing people, face multiple barriers across all stages, detection, diagnosis, treatment, and recovery, in addition to stigma and discrimination when seeking medical care for perinatal mental illness. As my son has aged, I have revealed to him with increasing honesty and specificity my struggles during my pregnancy and how my health improved after his birth. My need to shine a spotlight on gaps in care and disparities at all points along the care pathway, as well as to improve outcomes, drives my conversations with him and with other parents and fuels my desire to put words on the page. The Biden administration appears poised to address some of the most vexing challenges faced by pregnant and parenting people. For example, through the American Rescue Plan Act, which includes a provision that enables states to extend postpartum Medicaid benefits. Yet we have a long way to go as a society to improve health care and health outcomes for those affected by perinatal mental health conditions. We must protect those in greatest need, including mothers and other birthing people, infants, and families from this high-cost, high-prevalence, and high-need public health burden. That was Kara Zibin reading her essay, Perinatal Mental Illness Nearly Ended My Life. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you liked this episode, tell a friend, and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.